Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 3rd, 2014, and this is episode 1440 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. 866-658-4465 are the actual numbers. You call that number, you leave me a message, and you just might hear yourself on a Friday show. A warning for you, next weekend I am in West Virginia for the Permaethos First Annual Fall Festival. There probably won't be shows Thursday, Friday, or Monday of the next week, so calling in the next week you might end up kind of in a rat trap there, so to speak, uh, with a delay in Friday shows and the calls building up. It may not be the best time. It might actually be better if you have a call for a future show to call it uh, the week after next and uh, play for that Friday coming up. Just giving you a heads up on that one. Sometimes when I travel, I just can't keep a full show going. The Friday shows are the most difficult Shows to put together, they take the most time, and they're going out. It's going out really late today for a variety of reasons, some of which we'll cover in the first couple segments of today's show. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, knifekits.com. Hey, look, skills are on the decline in America. Hand hard, you know, hand based hard skills. One place you can start developing your skills is in the world of knife making. You start learning how to make knives, you start learning how to do a lot of things that transfer to other parts of your life. You can learn to do that by using simple kits at knifekits.com. If you're still not sure what you need to do, just from the kit standpoint, you can get books and DVDs. And if you need even more help, pick up the phone and call them. They'll help you out. They're well thought of in all the blade forums out there. They're just a great company to do business with, and they even give a discount to members of the Support Brigade. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Available at backwoodshome.com. One of my favorite magazines to read. Been reading them a long time. How long? Since 1994. That's 20 years. It's really great to now be working with some of the people that uh, I've been reading for so many years, like Masad Ayub and Dave Duffy, Duffy and other folks. Check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. I really can't give any company a better endorsement than to say that I've been their customer for 20 years. That's how I feel about Backwoods Home. They also have a special deal for new subscribers that are members of our support brigade. Just check them out at uh, thesurvivalpodcast.com and go and log into your members area if you're an MSB member. You'll find the discount there and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, also, it's a great time to join the MSB. It's the fall. Kids are back in school. Stuff's out of the way. Time to start planning for the uh, the fall garden for, for your winter and into the spring of next year for all your homesteading stuff. And all those great discounts are sitting there waiting for you. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more about that. And with that, let us talk about the year that is the episode. The year is 1440. I have two segments in the wiki today. One is the serial killer, Hang 'em High, and the other one is Montezuma Wags the Dog. Because we've focused so much over the uh, episodes in, in recent time of Europe and Asia, because that's where more of the history is recorded, I'm going to go Montezuma Wags the Dog. Everybody's probably heard of Montezuma's Revenge. This is a little bit different. But the serial killer Hang 'em High segment by Alex is awesome, too. And it brings up a lot of stuff about travesties of justice. So it might be worth reading today. There'll be a link in today's show notes. But Montezuma wags the dog. After 14 years of strong rule, the Aztec Emperor Obsidian Serpent, 
which I guess would be shiny black stone snake, right, grows ill and passes away. He has saved the Aztecs from being absorbed into the surrounding tribes and built them into a major power of the region surrounding Lake Texacuco. Uh, with the passing of the old emperor, the new emperor must make it clear that he is no soft touch. Emperor Montezuma will make a deal with the king across the lake to conduct a mock war in order to frighten the other tribes into believing the new emperor is even stronger than the old one. In fact, the sham was going to work so well that the Aztec Empire will double and then quadruple its size by the end of Montezuma's reign in 1469. So the Montezuma, the elder, will be around for 29 years from this point forward before he goes to the Montezuma's Revenge in the Sky. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrug, the mock battle had advantages for the emperor, but what was the advantage of the king across the lake? He was a distant relative, but connections are not reliable. The king and the emperor became strong partners because of mutual self-interest. The emperor needed to give the impression of power, or the various tribes under his rule would rebel. The king across the lake needed to help with needed help with fighting off cross-border raiders. He was the king. He was a, a king of a minor kingdom at the edge of the empire. By helping the emperor become stronger, the emperor was strong enough to help the minor king and bring stability to his own kingdom and expand the borders of the empire. The partnership will also make possible the building of an aqueduct system. I've not used the king's name because it's a mouthful, and primarily people want to know about Montezuma, not the guy who designed an aqueduct. Montezuma the Elder will build his empire surrounding what is present-day Mexico City. In other words, nothing's changed. You need a little bit of uh, impression out there in the world to create a fake war and uh, even have the other side agree to participate in it. And uh, like many wars that go on that are just for the purpose of attaining something or go on through proxies and no one really plans on winning, losing, it's just a war to get an objective accomplished, it's not actually victory, I'm sure people died in this mock war. Don't you think so? I mean, this was a group of people that played a game with a ball and people got hurt in it and the losers got their heads cut off or something like that. At least that's the, the mythology around it. Had human sacrifices, rolled people's heads downstairs. So a, a king sending off some of his warriors to die and another king sending off some warriors to die. And then when it's, you know, like, I'll send like 2,000 guys. So you send like 500 I'll put like my thousand guys that I don't really care about in the front, and I'll take my my superior warriors and keep them to the rear to finish off your guys. And you can tell your guys to retreat when a couple hundred of them are dead or something like that, and give up. And then we'll put some heads up on pikes or some shit like that, and we'll tell everybody that you fell under my rule, which you already technically did anyway. It'll scare the shit out of everybody. You can keep controlling your kingdom. We'll work together. You'll be one of my, you know, one of my my basically like a republic kind of strategy thing. I'll, I'll be the head guy, but you'll have your own little area to govern. It'll be cool. All right, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> uh, if you don't think things like that still go on today, <sighs> anyway, let us get into the main part of today's show, which is your calls. But I have to do a segment, once again called, Jack Was Wrong. <laughs> This one's actually not that big a deal, but I did feel that it was important that I pointed out for you. I gave you two pieces of information that apparently are incorrect. Uh, one, because my real estate agent was an idiot. And the other one, I think I've mentioned because, well, I think it used to be true. First one is that you cannot use your VA loan benefits if you're a veteran to buy an agriculturally exempt 
property. This is another example of my last real estate agent being an idiot. Even though I wasn't really looking to use my veterans benefits and it didn't affect me, it does affect you when I tell you something that's not true. Uh, a guy named Jim on the blog pointed out that he bought a ag exempt property using his VA benefits. It took actually finding lenders who do that, and many lenders will tell you they don't do that. We do agricultural exempt loans, uh, but we do not do them with veterans benefits. That doesn't mean you can't do it. It means they don't do it. So if you look around, you can find someone who will do it. The other thing that I've said, and I don't know if I said this before, or, or I mean when I, when I talked about this recently, but I'm sure I've mentioned it before, is that your VA loan benefits have like a lifetime usage cap. And I remember what the number was when I used mine, but I know back in 2001 that when I did my only ever VA loan that I ever did on a property, and I bought it for zero down using VA, and it worked out great for us, um, that I got a statement that said you've used basically X of Y, and there wasn't that much left in the balance uh, for use in the future. That is no longer the case. Uh, from what I can see, VA loans in of themselves don't have a limit. It's more about those underwriters' limits to how much they'll loan you. And they can be reused over and over again. They just can't be used simultaneously. In other words, if I own a home that's currently financed by a VA loan and I want to buy another house without selling the first house, I can't use VA to buy the second house until the first house sold. Um, so it is now a lifetime reusable benefit, and it can be used for ag-exempt properties. Uh, so it's not a huge deal thing, but it's not something I want you guys making decisions on uh, out there and not pursuing that avenue if it works for you, because VA loans are very useful, especially when smartly used, and what I mean by that is you can get into a lot of trouble buying property for nothing down and end up a little bit sketchy on equity holdings, but when you find a fairly valued or undervalued property that is going to have equity in it right away, it makes a lot of sense to not put the money down and use it to improve the property and it put the equity in from the front end versus the back end. Uh, so I wanted to cover that for you. So that's segment one of Jack Was Wrong. The rest of this is not Jack Was Wrong. It's, it's cool stuff Jack has for you. Number one, today I put out a post already, but I am now taking deposits for the TSP fall event uh, at the TSP homestead. This one is going to be the one that's on food forests. Design and extending existing forest edges. It's also going to be about plant propagation, including grafting and developing intermittent mist systems for rooting cuttings. We're going to brew compost tea. We're going to do a lot of really cool stuff, talk to you about irrigation, some of the things I've realized about that. Uh, I'm going to teach this in conjunction with my co-instructor for this class, Nicholas Ferguson. Uh, this is going to be the dates of November 6, 7, and 8, with students able to show up and camp out on the 5th and leave on the 9th. Uh, don't ask me, where's the link to sign up? You, there's no public link to sign up right now. Initially, I get 48 hours. Or in this case, I'm giving a full weekend, including the Friday, to MSB members. If you want to sign up, go to the MSB and log in on the front page. Great big red letters. There's a link that lets you link over to a page that I don't publicize where you can sign up. On Monday, if any of the positions remain, which I don't know if they will or not, I will open it up to any and all that want to come to this event. But this is one of the things I do for MSB members is give them first crack at this. This will be the only fall event we do this year, and we may only do one spring one. We may go to two a year, especially with Perma Ethos and wanting to do events up there and what have you. Uh, but events here are really special. The bonds that are formed are really special. 
I really want to see a lot of you guys here. Um, I know I'm going to see a lot of folks that have already been since I did the post. I think we've already had, I don't know, and that this was like an hour ago. Uh, so far, people that have actually made a deposit, seven. So we've already had seven, and I'm allowing uh, uh, 26 to this event. Uh, so uh, it's a quarter already at this point. Anyway, um, love to see some of you guys here. I may actually bump it up to 28. We usually have a, pe a couple people fall out. Um, so I might push it up a couple more, but we cannot go to the mid thirties like we've done before. It was just too much work for everybody. And I didn't get to spend enough time with individuals. I felt at the last one, no further details will be conveyed at this time, because if you want the details, they're all on the page that you can see if you're an MSB member, I'll give you all the details on Monday when I open it up, if there's any spots left. All right. Next up today, I've been hinting at something. And today I'm going to let a little tiny piece of the rabbit out of the bag, like the tip of his ear. The new project that I'm going to be doing is called Gen Forward. G-E-N-F-O-R-W-A-R-D. Gen Forward. And you can go to genforward.com right now and see some stuff. Not much, just a landing page and a way to get into an early information email list that will only be used for that. Everybody that's ever worked with me on email lists know if I set up an email list for a purpose, I don't ever use it for anybody else. I don't ever give it to anybody else. But I, I really believe that this new project is going to be earth-shattering. It is going to help strengthen family bonds. It's going to help people learn where they've come from and where they're going, which is probably the more, more important part of it is where you're going. And it will do a lot of things that people might initially look at and go, there's stuff that does that, and then realize, no, there's nothing that does this the way this is going to do this. We're going to be funding this initiative through an Indiegogo campaign to be launched on November 10th. Um, and I will be giving bits of information to people along the way leading up to that campaign. And my hope is to have a really great launch of Indiegogo. Instead of putting up a Kickstarter, Indiegogo, what have you, and then going, hey, look what we have. I want to do this a little bit differently. I want to pre-market it. Uh, I want to hit it with an impact, and this will be something you can help out with for five bucks if that's what you want to do, or you can help out for more. Um, it'll be up to you, but it's going to be really cool, and that's all I can say for now. And the website where you can go ahead and get in on the insider's information on it, again, is genforward.com, and uh, hope to see a lot of you guys signing up for that today. Cost to do that today, of course, since you're just getting information, is zero dollars. All right. With that, let's go ahead and take the first call of the day. Hi, Jack. I have a question on finding your market demand in your area. I've had a strong desire to get back into farming in your Mark Shepard interview. Finally, it's pushed me uh, into taking my first steps in that direction, uh, specifically in restorative agriculture with a focus on beef and pork production. Uh, my family has about 90 acres of land that we used to use uh, uh, used to farm and run cattle on, but is not being used currently, and I think it holds a lot of opportunity. But since I'm unsure of the market demand in the surrounding area, uh, my foot is kind of on the brakes. The farm is about 30 minutes away from San Antonio, and is minutes away from several towns with a population of about 20, 25,000 total. Uh, it is primarily an agriculture community. Meet. Uh, production going to uh, auction, so I feel like the market is really untapped. Uh, well, what are ways to find out what type of demand you may have? Uh, I appreciate all the help you can give me. Thank you. 
Uh, this is complicated. This could be an entire episode determining and harnessing market demand for a product. And it, it doesn't really matter if it's beyond organic beef or it's uh, uh, an electronic product that you sell on the Internet, other than the geography of distribution will change. Uh, but determining demand in your particular instance, the fact that you're near San Antonio is interesting because there is a huge... Uh, ethnic community in San Antonio and, and the Hispanic community. So it's one of the niche markets that you can play to. I think what a lot of people don't realize, though, is there's also a very large Asian community in San Antonio. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because both of those communities have a desire for certain products, especially food, that's a little bit more difficult to fulfill uh, when you're not where you're from. And that, with Hispanics, there might be a huge market there with pork, for instance, and some of the other things there may be advantages to exploring the Asian market. I don't know either one well, but I do know those are some niches that I would at least begin my investigation in. The towns you mentioned near you are certainly large enough to be markets in and of themselves, and the city of San Antonio itself is a huge market in America. Of 1.39 million people is the population. It's the seventh most populous city in the country, and uh, the second most populous in Texas. Uh, there's a little bit about that that's a little misleading, because when you look at populations of Dallas and Fort Worth, they're highly misleading about the actual numbers of people because Dallas-Fort Worth functions much more as a metroplex. So I would say the largest market in, in Texas is the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, followed by Houston, then San Antonio, then Austin. So you have a very large market in, in, a, in a good market. But it's also a somewhat undeveloped market. I would say Texas probably lags behind every other state of its economic significance uh, when it comes to expanding local food markets. I, it, it's, it's shameful, honestly, and the one place that's the exception would be the Austin market. Um, but it's just not where it should be for what we have available to us. If you look at counterparts, so if you look at who, who out there is a state of the economic significance of Texas, you would look at You know, three places I don't want to go, California, Illinois, and New York. Uh, and all of them are, I would say, ahead of us with the beyond organic, the organic, the local food movements, in spite of regulations that actually make it more difficult to do it there. But it's something that's just hit, let's say, the, the affluent culture harder there. Though we are making big strides in Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Houston, and Austin toward that, it's, it's yet a lot to be done. So the first thing you probably have is actually demand that exceeds supply, yet the demand itself is so untapped that many that are of the demand don't know that there's even an opportunity. They can't find it. So I would start out with determining if I want food like this right now, where do I have to go and what do I have to do to get it? And then I would figure out, well, who's buying it? So I might become a customer, and I might start investigating who's buying it. Where do they live? What do they want? Remember, I just did a whole show on business, and I said, what you always need to determine about your market is who are they, what do they want, and how do they want it. So 
it doesn't matter what you're looking at, you're always going to go that way. So who are the people in your area that want what you have? Whether that's restaurants, resellers, suppliers, doesn't matter, individual direct customers, how do they want it? What what can they not get right now that they want to have? And what form do they want it? Do they want meat that's produced? Or are you looking for or, or are there people out there that are looking for buy a whole side of beef? And have someone else process it. So what's there? So this is where you have to start. You're very early in this uh, discovery. But what I would say and, and to be encouraging to you is that if you already have this piece of land and it's just sitting there and it's about developing it, you can pick a piece of it and start to develop it. And things like cows and pigs and chickens do have market rates where at least they can be exchanged and you can begin to develop the system and develop some cash flow off the system and start to develop peripheral additional markets is the, the avenue that I would take there. Um, it's not as simple as just opening up the yellow page and finding people that buy you know pastured poultry. It takes a little bit more work than that. And the good news, though, is you're on site and you're there. You're not trying to do this remotely. So that means that you can actually start digging into the community. So I would start asking questions like, you know, find people that you can talk to and just simply say, you know, is there a place that I can buy pasture, grass-fed pastured beef? Where is it? Where can I find it? I mean, even things like, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities that can be had with, you know, to test the market. There's nothing wrong with this, okay? Some people get upset by it, but I wouldn't. Go on San Antonio Craigslist and say, we have five beef cattle, pasture-fed, for sale, direct to consumer through a local slaughtering facility right now. Um, uh, it can be either bought whole or half. And and just put it out there. And when somebody responds, I'm sorry, we already sold them all. Um, don't know where we're going to have more. And, you know, run it for just a couple of days and take it down so it doesn't bother too many people. But see if there's any demand. Like, if you, if you get 10 hits on that, then you know that market's sitting there. It's just waiting. And it's not that's not a conclusive thing, but it's an encouraging thing that starts to at least head you in the right direction. You could do that with, with pigs and chickens and, and cattle. And if you get a really bang-up response to hogs but not the cattle, well, that tells you something, doesn't it? I'd probably go in and I would take about a week of my life and I would spend a, at least a week or two before you spend this week where you're off work and it's costing you money to not be working. And I would determine every restaurant that I could within 100 miles of, of my property that was privately owned and individual decisions were made and I would try to set up five-minute meetings with as many of my scan. I'd cold call the ones I couldn't do it with. And when I say cold call, I don't mean on the phone. I mean, I'd walk in, hey, is your chef or manager here? I need just five minutes of his time. And I would say right up front, I'm not selling you anything. I have nothing yet. I'm exploring, developing locally uh, produced food in your market, and I'm wanting to see what you would buy if it was available, what what would be, you know, what, what are your requirements what are the minimums you would need, things like that. And they'll tell you what you need to know. And I would try to make that the core because those people can be depended on. They are going to serve customers all the time. And and people like that are, are looking for the top quality stuff. So that, that's kind of where I would start. So I would just start by asking, talking to people, where is it available now, what's available now. If you, if you find like butcher shops and things like that selling stuff like this, Go ask them what 
what would you what do you want that you can't get or what are you always running out of what do your customers want you know what is who's your average customer like you have to start talking to people for a discovery of a market like this it, it's really the only way to go um, and then understand that one of the advantages you have though with something like pigs is if you have 150 pigs coming to harvest time and you can only sell 75 of them this week and the other 75 have to hold over another week they just get fatter They do cost you some money to get fatter, and they take some work to get fatter, but they're not going to rot. Pigs don't rot. So if you had a whole bunch of lettuce and couldn't move it, you got a problem. So, so it's great that you would start with animals in a, a civil pasture model, and because those long-term overstory trees and bushes and everything, you're going years to, to initial harvest, two, three years for some of the bushes and shrubs and smaller trees to start producing. That's plenty of time to develop a market for them, and if nothing else, you, you got supplemental feed for your animals. So I'll be encouraging you to, to go forward with it, but I'm telling you it's, it's a long-term discovery process, and it can't be done with a couple phone calls, but it, it is not actually that hard. It does involve talking to people. I would find every chamber of commerce that you can go to. Just talk to people, you know. Do you and just you know, tell them right up front, I am not even doing this yet, because that just takes people right off their heels. You know, they're back on their heels at these in any kind of in, you know initial discussion about buying anything. They want to throw up the shield of defense because I don't want you to sell me nothing yet, right? Well, I don't have anything. I'm just considering developing a local ranch to do locally produced food. And I want to know, you know, what do you buy like that right now? Would you buy it? What would you be willing to pay? Don't try to educate people during this process about why a chicken's worth $20. The people that don't get that right now, don't even worry about that. Just worry about whether or not they have an interest in it. When you have a product, then you can educate them with the product. Uh, I would also say that there's, it's hard to beat Joel Salatin's plan for getting started, which is raise 100 broiler chickens, butcher them all, Put 50 of them in your, your household and use them to feed yourself. Take 50 of them and give them away. Just give them to people. Uh, it won't cost you that much money to do that, and you'll have 50 people out there that know what quality poultry is really all about, and they will be interested in more. And it reminds me of a, one of my favorite authors is a guy named James Redfield that wrote a book called The Celestine Prophecy, which I don't completely buy into, but I, I do like his work, and I do like the philosophy around his work and the the Jungian concepts to the work. And he's a best-selling author, and the way he got that book off the ground was he self-published it and gave away a 1,000 copies. So that reciprocity model and that, that sow-the-seed-first model does work, and it works. Joel Salton says it works for agriculture, and I don't doubt a damn thing Joel says, and I know it works in books, and I know it works in a lot of other things. It's worked in the Survival Podcast. We gave a lot before we ever took a dime in. It does work, and that's that's a great way to do it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Mike, one of your tenant farmers, and hopefully a future uh, uh, elemental partner, Perma Ethos. I'm calling because uh, my farm in uh, Tennessee uh, didn't create a lot of biomass and what could become pasture one day. It's mostly just uh, rub, you know, fields. And I'm curious because I ran the pigs through there, and now the biomass has increased exponentially I've weeds anywhere from waist high to you know over my head I'm wondering if I should cut that down before the winter sometime in this fall uh, let it go back into the soil or if I should just leave it standing till uh, early spring thanks I love what you do see ya 
Well, a question like this is usually two answers. It's what would you do if you could, and what will you do with what you have available? So, I mean, the best answer would be to continue to use animals to graze it rotationally into and through the winter and back out to spring so that the animals would control the vegetation. But what it sounds like is much pigs graduated, and now there's no pigs to keep pushing through there. You're done with them. Uh, I'm guessing that, and I'm not sure. If you have animals, you can continue to rotationally graze on that pasture. What you're seeing is the fruits of your labor. It worked. So we did an exponential increase. Scabby pasture, little bits here and there, tufts, and put the pigs through it a few times and pulse them through, and boom! I'll be, wow, look at all this, waist high. And some of that's really high-quality stuff, and some of it's, Some of it's annual weeds that are going to reseed, and some of it is perennial weeds that are going to come back from the roots. So if you're not going to graze it, I would put it to the ground. And and I'll, I'll give you my explanation as to why. Number one, at that height, if you, if you especially if you chop it more than mow it, so it's like a slash, so it goes down in big pieces, it's going to cover the ground really well, and I'd slash it with the stubble at least a couple inches high, so that what gets dropped gets caught in the stubble, covers the ground, and starts to rot. You're far enough north, you're going to get some snow cover, you're going to get some some moisture, you're going to get cold, and you're going to get rot. And that's going to further improve the pasture and bring it back. The issue you have is that you now are in a position where that piece of property is successing forward, and where does a field success to if left unchecked? to scrub growth and then forest. And if it just goes unchecked right now, it's not going to be a designer forest. It's going to be a weedy, clumpy, pioneery, dominated by what's ever most prevalent in your area forest that it's headed toward. So if that's what you don't want, which it, I don't think it is what you want, based on what I know of your goals, Mike, then we need to control that. By cutting it and putting it to the ground, you're still going to get some early growth right now. And you're also going to start heading, uh, heading off some of, some of the growth of the perennial weeds. The problem you're going to have is perennial weeds are going to come back stronger next year than they are this year. And if you're not putting animals on them, you're going to have to come up with some other way to control this area. So that's what you have to think about long term. A thing you can do, though, to help improve your results is you can seed the hell out of this thing. With anything that will handle the cool temperatures, rye, clover, daikon, and if you, if I were you, and if you have a slashing mower, something that's, again, not going to like blow like a typical lawnmower, but more of a slashing mower that will drop things on top of it, you can set a couple inches high. I would consider going ahead and seeding it first and dropping this stuff right on top of it so the stuff grows up through it. And if you get in there with heavy with and cheap seed too, daikon, turnip, clover's expensive, but you don't need that much of it. I mean, you can seed at rates of a, a pound and a half of an acre properly spread into that environment it should do really, really well for you. And a mix of clovers from everything from Dutch white to higher like strawberry, uh, crimson, all these all uh, arrow leaf stuff like that. Uh, maybe some alfalfa mixed in with it. The more you can do to put what you do want there, the more you suppress what you don't want there. And you could then, once that snow melt comes off, go ahead and uh, possibly hit it again and do a cutting 
and, and bring in some summer stuff that would that would help you know take it forward from there. So you have to decide now if you want to keep it pasture, what are you going to put on it, and when are animals going to be on it, when are they going to be off of it? And in spite of everything I said, you kind of have to manage it now around that type of a rotational thinking. Uh, in most instances, there'd be animals on it damn near all year, and, and that's that's really how you keep it under control. It might be time. It might be time now, uh, if the hogs did that much for you, to start going into kind of a leader-follower system, chicken, hogs, and cattle being rotated intermittently uh, and looking at that. So uh, we can definitely help you with that because you're part of the team, but I wanted to answer your question here for everybody. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Kevin from Texas. Hey, listening to episode 1437, you know, uh, as many times as you've covered this over the years and I've heard it, uh, I never thought about this until just now. Uh, those of us that have golf carts, the electric golf carts, you were talking about your battery bank. And uh, I built a battery bank in our uh, other property, and then when we moved here, uh, I had sold it with that property. I was wondering if uh, you or Steven, either one, had any ideas how you could utilize your golf cart as a backup battery bank for your home and uh, how that would be used. Thanks. Appreciate it again, Jack. Bye. All right, well, this is one of those things where I have to start out with. Your golf cart might be different, okay? Because different golf carts come different ways with different batteries, But the most common configuration that I've seen in golf carts are six GC2 batteries, each being six volts, connected in series, which is where we go from negative to positive, negative to positive as we go across, and we double the voltage every time we do that with two batteries. So we take six batteries, and we hook them up in six volts apiece into one great big series-based battery bank, and we end up with 36 volts. So the issue for the golf cart owner that says, I want to take this energy and put it into my house, and I don't want to go out there and disconnect a bunch of stuff to do it, is they're going to end up with a 36 volts DC out. Okay. Now, I have heard there are actually some golf carts that are based on eight batteries done this way, and they're 48 volts, and that would be a lot easier because there's a lot more options available in 48-volt inverters. I can only find a very few number of 36-volt inverters. They're big and they're expensive. I'm talking like 5,000-watt inverters. And the thing is, if you put a 5,000-watt inverter... Uh, on a golf cart with uh, six GC2s, and you try to pull that much energy out of it, it ain't going to last very long. Uh, so you're putting a really big, huge inverter on there to do what a normal battery bank that you would expect would be able to do something you'd build in your closet, which you could build also out of the GC2 batteries or out of marine batteries or any other set of batteries you wanted to. So what you've got is you've got this, this, this bank of batteries, basically. And that bank of batteries is is there and it's available. It's got energy in it because you keep it charged. So it's you know it's 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 normal that you'd want to use it. So is it worth 500 bucks or more for one of these inverters to make that energy available to you? And the answer is well, if you that is your choices between you have that energy available and you don't, probably is. It probably is. 
But, you know, $500 isn't exactly chump change. And you could buy a decent, not a great, but a decent generator for that price. Now, of course, the generator needs gas, generator makes noise, generator needs service, your batteries in your golf cart need service, but they're already there, so I can get where you'd want to do it. So my biggest hang-up is that you're having to buy, from, from my research, a fairly expensive overkill inverter to get that energy available to you. Now, there is another way to skin this cat. We can use something called a, a voltage regulator. I'm getting a little bit beyond my electrical engineering pay grade here. And if we're going to pull that power out one side and make it available in 12 volts, I don't know exactly how that might interfere with everything else that energy is doing. And if it's exactly how to wire it, you'd want to fuse it on both sides of that. As I've looked these up, most of them are about 10 amps. So they're converting 36 VDC to 12 VC at 10 amps. A 800-watt standard, off-the-shelf, decent power inverter like Whistler uh, will draw about 7 amps. Everything should work. If nothing else, it should be very reasonable that you could use one of these step-down uh, uh, step converters to convert 36 volt to 12 volt. It could sit off to the side with a switch so that when the cart's turned off and it's turned off, nothing's happening. And if you had the cart off, you could turn that switch on and that would isolate the two sides. That current could then be run into something like an 800-watt or 1,200-watt inverter. And that inverter could then be made available for AC power usage at reasonable draw rates. That would be a less expensive way to do it because these things are not expensive. They range from 15 to 30 bucks. But there's some wiring knowledge in there that you'd need to take. But that's your big thing is getting that, that 36 volts that most golf carts are into a 12-volt usable thing. Now, I've seen plenty of golf carts with little step-down inverters in them that have like a 12-volt thing so you can plug 12-volt accessories into. But you can only then use basically like uh, a 100 watt to 150 watt inverter through those type of plugs. They just can't handle uh, pulling 800 watts of power. You're, you're again, you're like 100 watt, 150 watt cigarette style plug-ins could go straight into a golf cart if it has an accessory plug with a step down. Will that step down allow you though to to, to wire off of it and put a full size? I don't know. It depends on what it is. So this is one maybe we can kick to Steve, but we're a couple weeks out from here, and Steve because Steve's on vacation this week. And uh, next week I won't have a Friday show, so we'll see if he wants to add on to this one. You can do it, but these are the things you have to deal with. I understand, again, why you want to because, well, the batteries are sitting there. And they're ideal batteries for a battery bank. Your GC2s are just great. Now, again, you got to figure this out for yourself, though. What do you have? Because there's 2-volt, there's 6-volt, there's I think there's I think 8-volt. Actually, I think it's 6, 8, and 12, right? So there's different types of golf cart batteries. Um, so you have to figure out what you're dealing with, what configuration they're in, and, and what they're doing, uh, and what what the, the what the the voltage of the actual system is before you get into converting it or buying the right inverter or something. I mean, if you had a, a 48 volt golf cart, which I understand they do exist, um, at least to my understanding, I've heard that they exist. Uh, then a 48 volt inverter would be all you would need, and you could go right from there. 
Always fuse things. Always know what you're doing when you're jacking around with electricity, though. Um, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Chris from New Jersey. Question about starting a business online. Uh, you did a lot of those kind of episodes recently. Um, I was hoping you give a little more detail on that. Like, for instance, um, do, I need, do you think I need to start an LLC or just uh, purchasing a domain name and keeping track of finances and reporting those when I do my taxes? Is that sufficient? Uh, I'm wondering what would be involved there to get started. Thanks for your help. In most instances, when you're starting an individual online business, it's probably not necessary to form a corporation or a limited liability company. Specifically, if you individually are going to run the company and, and, and profit from the income. From a tax consequence standpoint, if you are a single person in possession of an LLC and the single owner of the LLC and the single partner of the LLC, 100% of the income of the LLC passes on to you, and there ain't a hide nor hair of difference in the tax consequences because you're going to be taxed at your individual rate, not at the corporate rate. If you set up an Inc., an S-Corp, a C-Corp, etc., then that corporation may be subject to taxes in your state and or at the federal level, and the corporation will pay taxes, and then, and then you, if you take the money out after you pay taxes on it, you will pay taxes as income a second time. That sounds bad, but it not necessarily is because a company can transfer the money to you before the end of the tax year and company can make no money and you've received it as, as income from the company. But this is all complicated and I'm really not the person to ask in your individual situation, do you need to do this or not? The appropriate person to talk to would be a CPA, which you should already have just for your personal taxes because it makes sense to have one and a tax attorney and you should discuss the business, the business's goals and the, the, the intention and the potential turnover in revenue with those two individuals to advise you professionally as to what you need. I can tell you, though, for the average person that's just going to set up a website and start learning the business of online marketing, that none of this is necessary, and none of it makes something deductible that wasn't deductible anyway. In other words, if you set up a business and get a hosting account and you keep track of that, that can go on your Schedule C. And it goes down as a business expense for your self-employment activities. Okay? That simple. As businesses grow and get bigger and we do things like pay ourselves dividends from the company, if it's an incorporated company, well, then we can avoid Social Security taxes up to a certain point and things like that. But usually by that point, we're, re we're exceeding the cap there anyway. There's a lot of different things and a lot of different reasons that people incorporate. The number one thing that some people are screaming at their, their computers or their iPods or whatever right now, and they're probably wrong about it, is, to protect you from being sued! To protect you from being sued! Ah, I read this guy, he said, he wrote an article. Let me explain something to you how, how this works. If you are online doing business and somebody wants to sue you, there is absolutely nothing. It prevents them from naming both you as an individual and your company in the lawsuit. Now, whether or not it's called fly has a lot to do with the way you've set it up and the way you've done a structure and everything. But what I'm telling you flat out is if all you've done is go to, uh, what's that, LegalZoom.com and filled out a form and set up your corporation with your state as an LLC and that's it and you're doing business as such online, you have not shielded yourself from dick all. 
from a liability standpoint. Just by doing that alone, no. It's a little bit it's a little bit of help, but not that much. Especially as a single owner of an LLC because you're the only person inside the organization to go after in the first place and you really haven't isolated your personal assets because even if they only ruled against your company and your company owns it but you're the sole owner of the company, the 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 liabilities for the obligation in the lawsuit could pass on to you individually by court order anyway, from my understanding. When you get into higher levels of asset protection, you have a company which owns a company and you own the other company, okay? And then you might own multiple companies through multiple companies that are all eventually owned by one company. And the further off you get, the greater layers and levels of protection that you afford yourself. These are not decisions to base on what Jack Spierko says. These are decisions to base on what a tax attorney licensed to practice law in the state in which you both live and the state you're incorporating in have to say. And, and it's also a good strategic discussion with a CPA about the overall and overriding tax consequences of your choices and decisions. But if your plan is I'm going to go and I'm going to build a blog and I'm going to start doing some sort of a product or whatever, you can start all of that without doing this. And you can do it as a sole proprietor. And until you're, until you're turning over at least twenty or $30,000 in revenue, it really ain't worth worrying about. First of all, because you're going to still be in the category of people who are audited by the IRS less than one quarter of 1% of the time anyway. Just at income levels under $200,000. I mean, the odds of audit are so minuscule to begin with, unless things really, really look wonky. Okay, So as long as you're keeping good records and you have your records and what have you, you can you'll know what you can deduct. And anything you think you can deduct... Be very meticulous about documenting what it is. The simple formula to keep things organized is get 12 envelopes, January, February, March, April, May, written on them. Put everything in there documented and then run a spreadsheet. And when you talk to your CPA, explain exactly, if you have any question about whether it's legitimate or not, talk to your CPA about it and seek their guidance. And they'll tell you either, yes, it's deductible, no, I wouldn't deduct that, or if you do deduct that, here's how to, how to set it up, or it's deductible, but it's not 100% deductible. Right, All of those are conversations that we have with our CPA every year about anything we're not sure about. Everything we've already been doing for years and deducting for years, we just put it into a basket and that stays in there and here it is. And our deduction for this line item is Z. Right, And then we'll say, well, what about this? We did this this year. How would? And sometimes it's, okay, that is deductible. There's two ways we can claim it. See, these are all decisions from a CPA. And having a company or not doesn't really change it other than, again, if you have an ink, right? If you have a C corporation, the corporation itself incurs tax liabilities before the individuals paid by the company do, or actually after the individuals paid by the company do. So again, you got to have that conversation. But if I were someone out there, and the only thing preventing me from setting up a domain and a website and getting my shit together was, do I need a company or not? I'd get my shit together and start going. And, and once you build something, you can effectively incorporate it. There's a lot of things that are a pain in the ass that a person just getting started really doesn't need. Like the stack of paperwork you now need to open a bank account in the name of a company. Where you go down and open up one and you just open up one. See, this is what I would do. If I were starting all over again and I was right at the very beginning and I didn't have any income yet, I'd get $100 
and I'd write a check for cash for $100 from the one account I already had in a bank, and I'd open a new account in the same bank for the purpose of being a business, but I would set it up basically as a, per, a, a personal account, and I would put $100 in it. And I would, and I would, anytime I needed to pay a bill for the company that was an expense, I would either have money being deposited in that account that I'm using, or I'd transfer money to that account to cover the expense. And every dime and every penny that came out of that account would only be for the business. And if it ever came up to a point where you can't really do that as an expense, it's still a personal thing, and I just don't claim it. Okay. I would, you could use your PayPal account, no problem, but I would try to do this. If your PayPal account is how you're receiving money, you transfer the money out of your PayPal account into your, your checking account for the business, even though it's a personal business, a checking account, and then pay all your business expenses out of that one hole. It makes it very clear, it makes it easy to track, and it makes it easy to explain. And if you don't use your PayPal account for anything but business, then there's no problem with using it to also pay bills. But I would try to pay it as much out of a single source bank account as I can. That's all I would do for now. Again, if you're doing a small business and you're not doing that much, and the people that are out there again screaming about legal liability, you don't really know what you're saying. Because you, and in many instances, you'd be better off. I'll give you one and then we'll move on to another one. We had a small company that my, myself and Neil Franklin had set up. And we had interviewed some people, and we had given them some design tasks because we were looking for designers, and they had played around with some photography that was my photography that I own the rights to, and it was for a DVD jacket for a martial arts DVD. She did a proposed design, which was basically the picture, into the format to go. She did it backwards and upside down so it wouldn't work. Obviously, she didn't get the job. But she paid attention to what we were doing, and soon thereafter we actually released that product, and she said, that's my design. And so she sued us in Denton Small Claims Court. And I said, horseshit, I will go up there with all of this information, and I will represent myself, and I will slam dunk this bitch, and she will never, ever screw with me again. And then I found out that since she was suing the company that was, in effect, an incorporated company, I was not allowed to represent myself in small claims court. I had to have an attorney to represent the company. So our attorney, Jeff, said, I can go slam dunk this bitch if you want me to, but it's going to cost you at least $2,500, and she only wants $500. So I gave her her $500. Ironically, she was stupid enough to list that as one of her designs in a portfolio and resume. And later in life, somebody that was thinking about hiring her called me and said, Did she do a good job for you? Karma's a bitch. But in that instance, I would have been better off doing business as an individual. I would have never done business at the level we were doing business at as an individual there. But that's an example when people think they're protecting themselves from a lawsuit. It's not always the case that they are. And you can say whatever you want. The Constitution guarantees you the right to represent yourself in a court of law in a criminal trial. Not in a lawsuit where individual jurisdictions often set their own requirements, requiring that you had to have an attorney licensed in the state of, of uh, Texas to represent you in small claims court if your company, not you, were sued in Denton County. Well, there you go. So talk to an attorney. I didn't know that until we got sued. Just saying. Let's take another call.
Hey, Jack, it's Jesse in San Diego. Hey, uh, I was just wondering if you knew a good source, like online or uh, a catalog maybe where I could find scion wood. Um, last year I had a hard time locating any around here, and I never did really find a good place to purchase it. Uh, if you have anything that can help me out, I'd appreciate it. Thanks again. Well, first of all, in San Diego, you should be ground zero towards some of the most amazing opportunities for scion wood and grafting uh, of anybody in our audience. It's like one of the meccas of growing rare and unusual and cool varieties of fruits. So you should be able, and I'll talk about how you might find more of what's available around you in just a second. When I looked online, uh, places that I found include a place called Walden Heights Nursery, and Maple Valley Orchards, and both have massive selections of apple sign wood and some other things like plums and pears and, and things like that as well. But um, if you keep digging and you just use terms like sign wood for sale, you'll find a lot of uh, online sources. I can't recommend any as a good source as far as quality or delivery or anything. I've never bought any that way, so I just don't know. If anybody out there does know a good place... Um, where you can get cyan wood uh, if online and buy certain varieties and rare things and stuff like that, please post it in today's show notes for episode 1040. But I can tell you how I'd make some really great connections locally and get some really cool cyan wood. I'd put an ad on, on, uh, on Craigslist that says, if you live in the San Diego area and have fruit trees, I provide free trimming of fruit trees. Just contact me today to see if you qualify. And there ain't no more to it than that, except when the person calls you and they're 150 miles away, you go, dude, I don't, I'm not there. They have like four things that they want pruned, and uh, they're things that you could get anywhere. Like, you know, you know oh, I got a red delicious apple tree. Uh, okay, dude, I'm not coming out there to do that. Um, and you might be surprised at people that would say, yeah, I want you to trim my fruit trees, and they have, you know, 10, 15 fruit trees in the backyard and some really cool stuff. That, and when you when you prune them for them, you prune them when they're doing it, when it's a great time to take your sign wood and you do that. Um, so that's another way that you could do it. You know, we have like a, a barter board on the Survival Podcast forum. I'd go in there and say I'm interested in trading sign wood with people. Um, that would be where you could just basically I'll send you a box of some different things that I have and all labeled and you do the same for me and make sure they know, you know, the, how big it should be and how to do it right, how to cut it and when to cut it so you're not getting a thing with a bunch of leaves that were bright green the day it was cut and they're all snagged in the bottom of the box. Now you don't want cuttings, you want sign when you want dormant, you know, pruned at the right time limbs. Now if, if you want wood cuttings to do direct rooting on for figs, you happen to have one of the coolest companies to work with right in your backyard. You can go out there and see them and buy fig cuttings from them directly, and they're called Encanto Farms. Uh, it's E-N-C-A-N-T-O, EncantoFarms.com. This is a group that I really need to reach out to about doing something for the MSB at some point. When I get some time, I'm going to because the uh, the stuff that they have available is uh, is pretty amazing. Just the the, the total uh, number of, of fig scion that they, they have available is is incredible. But yet 
it, it ebbs and flows as to whether or not you can find out what they have on their website. Their website seems kind of amateurish, but the varieties they have listed just seem absolutely awesome. And on their website is a thing called the California Rare Fruit Growers. And I would recommend if you live in California, you got to get in touch with these guys because they do all kinds of exchanges of plant material. So I, I think scion wood is something you can buy, but the reason you don't find a tremendous amount of people selling it is because basically it's prunings off of trees. And it, it's so easy to get if you really start looking for it and trying to find it that it's hard to make a market in selling it. But I'll bet you, as we run into next year with Nick Ferguson's plant propagation courses, and we go through the, the basic intro course, the advanced course, and the master class, we're going to be building up entire groups of people doing backyard nurseries, and we'll have more opportunities for exchange. But I'd start by, one, offering to prune trees to those who qualify through any type of free advertising you have in the San Diego area, And that'll also help you make connections and learn a lot about what grows in your area. And that's priceless. Uh, and just paying attention and looking around, when you see a fruit tree somewhere, and it's a person that's relatively easy to talk to, go talk to them. You might also find out that you have a lot of uh, nurseries in your area that just sell you know, bare-rooted and potted trees. Talk to them. I mean, you might find them. They say, we don't have sign. Well, well you got this tree sitting over there. Can I give you five bucks to cut a piece off of it? You know, if it's a dormant tree, uh, you might surprise that how quickly they say, yeah. Or, dude, just here. I didn't know that's all you wanted was one or two. Here, 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 here. Here's three. Get out of here. Uh, come back and buy something from me someday. So uh, give it a multi-pronged approach there. And, uh, again, I'd recommend that someone get into the swap meat board on the forum and uh, start up a post about exchanging plant materials. And uh, I bet you'd find a ton of people willing to do that right away, and I think we'll build a bigger and bigger group of people that are willing to do that. Uh, but on that note, anybody that's out there has really cool figs, I am getting more and more interested in playing around with figs, and I've got the right climate for it. And uh, whether you want to go ahead and, and, and root cuttings for me or just send them to me at the right time of year, please get in touch with me. Because uh, that's something Nick Ferguson and I are very look, much looking forward to is starting to develop a lot of different unique figs that are out there and a lot of people like them, but they're just not really available. Uh, specifically ones that are known to be very, very cold hardy. Uh, that's a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. And uh, anything else interesting out there that folks want to uh, get in our hands at either my homestead or Perma Ethos, we'd be very interested in talking to you. Let's, uh, let's take another call. Hi. This is Stacia from Northeast Oklahoma. How do I combat the webworms that are engulfing my pecan trees? Thank you. Uh, most of the time, if you're talking about mature pecans, and they'll hit ash and persimmon and hickory and walnut and mulberry and a bunch of other trees. I mean, they're not just specific to pecans, but you're talking about a mature pecan tree, and it's got a few here and there webworms up on it. They ain't really going to hurt it. They're really not, and they're not too much worth worrying about unless they're really tearing it up and defoliating the hell out of your trees. Um, we had webworms used to get all over our black walnuts in in, uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, I'd go out with a big, long stick and, and just knock the, the webbing apart, and I didn't know I was actually doing anything good, but turns out 
uh, from having listened to the dirt doctor, Harry Garrett, here in Texas for so long, uh, that that's actually a really good technique because one of the reasons they have those webs are to protect them from things called wasps. And if you have lots of wasps around, you're not going to have a lot of webworms around because those wasps tear those things up, uh, including the the big giant wasps that you see around and little tiny parasitic wasps. So that is the first thing is to make sure that you're not killing stuff. And one of the things you can do is start starting really next year is start releasing a wasp in your area called a trichogamma wasp. And they're available from a lot of places. Groworganic.com, which is Peaceful Valley uh, Nursery, sells them. Uh, and, and basically you buy them and, and you put them out and they hatch out and they do their thing. And building up a population of those, uh, they will they will have at any type of caterpillar or worm and, and just tear them up. But again, like I said, when I was a kid, I'd go out there and they just made me mad. So I'd just take a big old long stick and tear them open and... Because they're now out and about, so to speak, they're they're more likely to be uh, predated upon versus hiding out in their little bags. Uh, I do know, like old timers would go out sometimes with an oil rag and burn them, and I guess that works. But you could set your whole tree on fire, and it, it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. Any kind, they're not really a very tough critter. So any type of a, of a of a a a organic pesticide like an oil based plant oil pesticide will will kill them pretty regularly. But you're also going to kill other things when you do that. And again, you always have to think about it this way: if you want lions on the Serengeti, you've got to have wildebeests and zebras and gazelles and things for the lions to eat. So if you go out and you constantly knock down the number of pests, all your predators leave. And the pest always rebounds faster than the predator. So you think, well, I don't care if there's any of these trichogamma wasps out here because I've done killed them all. Except you haven't killed them all, and there'll be more next year and less predators in relation to the more. So that's the problem with just trying to wipe them out through some sort of chemical means. Is not only do you get some of the good guys by accident, but you're also pushing back the encouragement for the predators to come in. Because these things, if you if you get them on like a young tree, they can be a problem. Because that young tree is not yet robust enough. But if you if you really look at like a mature pecan, I'm saying even like seven eight year old tree, something that's you know bigger around than your a man's forearm anyway, and you know it's 15 feet high already. That tree, you could cut half of that damn tree off; it'll grow right back. It don't care. It's designed to do that. Um, if you get a smaller tree, usually the easiest thing to do is let them form a little bag, well, you know, and, and they kind of have different times of day that they come out and go in their little bag, and when they're all in there, cut the daggone limb off and throw it in the burner. That's what that's a mechanical removal means on your younger trees. Uh, it's easy just to prune off what they've, what they've bagged up. But don't over-sweat them. They're not that bad. Tear them open and encourage predators, and you'll probably be fine. I'll put a link to the Dirt Doctor's uh, uh, recommendations, which are pretty much what I've given you. Um, you can use BT as well on them. Uh, BT is a bacillus thrombosis. It's, a, it's a, a virus, basically, or bacteria, I should say, that only affects worms and caterpillars and things like that. It, it's not something that would hurt a person, but it can, it can also, again, 
any kind of means of, of chemical control, even organic chemical control, often takes out things that you really don't want it to take out. What you actually want is, is you don't want to eliminate all of them. You want a balance. You want enough of them there to bring in and hold predators so that they eat them and other things. But you don't want so many of them that they overrun your plants and overrun your predator population. So by weakening them and keeping your trees healthy, you can do the best of both worlds. But again, I'll include that link to Howard Garrett's page on these guys in uh, today's show notes. Jack, it's Jay from New Jersey. I have a question about the economy and precious metals. The economy does completely crash and burn and a loaf of bread jumps up to, say, $25 or more, I would assume the value of gold and silver would go through the roof as well. Would it be possible in that situa situation to sell the metal for the now higher rate and use that money to cut a large check to a mortgage company to pay off or put a serious dent in a mortgage? I would assume that even though the price of everyday goods would go up, that the mortgage balance would still remain the same. Am I missing something? I'd love to hear your opinion. I love the show. Thanks for everything, Jack. Because of you, I realized that things weren't as they seemed, and I began buying personal. Thanks. There are some great reasons to make silver and gold part of your portfolio and to use it as some insurance of your wealth. And that's why I stick to what I consider a very conservative number of 5% to 10% of your net wealth. Well, what you just heard the caller ask about, and I'm not picking on you, is not one of them. I remember somebody telling me this one time. He said, Jack, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a whole bunch of silver, and I'm just going to sit on it. And one day when uh, when the economy goes to shit, I'm just going to walk down the bank with a few bars and pay off all that debt on my mortgage and buy a bunch of other stuff, too, while I'm at it. And that guy told me that in 1994. I wonder if he's still holding on to all those silver bars. I'm not sure if he is or not. Um, but that's 20 years. And it ain't worked yet. And the odds it's going to work in the next 20 years, they ain't that great. Silver is a store of value. And it does help against catastrophic economic failure. But what it also does, and has a very good track record of doing over the long haul is insulating against the continuous devaluation of the currency through inflation on the planned model. And that's why you see silver snake up and down and up and down and up and down. And I think you're going to see silver come down more before you see it go back up. And it may come down significantly yet. It may hit a, and I think you'll see a very clear floor. Uh, I kind of feel like that floor is around 12 bucks. Um, blueprint on the forum says it's 10. Blueprint could be white, right? I, it, it depends. If it hits 10, you'll see it bounce off of that like it's freaking a basketball court. I mean, there's a, a certain mentality with people that stack silver. And silver stackers have certain numbers in their head now that are, are going to be very, very difficult to get rid of. And, and when you get under 15 bucks, buying picks up. And when you get under 12, it's like, that's, I gotta get me some of this. But there's an interesting phenomenon that occurs with silver as the price declines. More and more people holding physical metal are less willing to sell it. And that means you have to depend on the metal that's already there and the metal that's being produced. And that has to also compete with the non-elastic industrial demand for silver. Gold doesn't really have this to the level silver does because most middle-income 
to even minorly affluent to lower income people that stack some metal, stack silver because it's affordable. Or gold, you know, trading at over $1,000 an ounce, or even if it comes down to 800 bucks, that's a lot of money to part with for one piece of gold. It doesn't really make a difference from a standpoint of total ounces because it's still about value contained. And in some ways, gold is superior because it holds more value and less space and weight. You got it? All right, so it's easier to transport it if you ever needed to because your personal shit has hit the fan. And most of the wealthy individuals I know, and I'm talking people with a net wealth of a couple million dollars or more, do own some gold. And if they own a lot of it for any period of time as trading material, they own it in electronic format, in ETFs. Okay, And that way they can profit from it, extract their profits, and reinvest them into what's hot now. That's why you see the metal market go up and down, and that's why you see it specifically coming down now, is there's a tremendous amount of new opportunities in equities and in the economy, in energy exploration, automation, etc. You see the economy be the, the weirdest thing you've seen ever in the next 10 years is things look really good in some areas and really shitty in others. And a lot of people in the middle are just getting hammered, but they have enough to survive, and therefore the whole thing's sustainable, and there's all these other new opportunities being chased and pursued. So that, that creates this, this kind of weird vibe that I think over the next decade that you're going to see. And what exactly that means for metals long term, and you know, the next, when I say long term, I mean midterm, next 10 years, I don't know. I know that when silver hits 10 bucks, I'm telling you folks, uh, if it does, I'm buying at that. I'm a big time buyer at 10 bucks. I'll also tell you this, those of you that have always passed up on the opportunity, to get the MSB for a single ounce of silver, the day we see $15, it's going to become two ounces of silver for a year. Uh, right now, the MSB is a tremendous value at an ounce of silver a year. So it's something to think about, too, if you have silver. and uh, But see, that's what happens. Again, the person that spent $22 bucks for silver is really, really hesitant to, to sell it at $12. But there's a whole lot of people willing to buy it at $12 that aren't willing to buy it at $20. And that's why I think there's this 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 built-in floor in a new economy, and it's not the old floor of you know six or seven bucks. It's it's significantly higher, and um, you know Blueprint's reasoning on it going down as low as he thinks it's going to go is that the Fed's reining in the dollar. No, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. There's there is so much liquidity out there already that is ceasing to put new liquidity in. All that actually is designed to do is actually release the liquidity that's sitting there. All the money that the in, in institutions are sitting on to saying, okay, we're cutting off the freaking sugar daddy list, and you're going to have to do something with the money you have. And you look for that to happen, and you look for, right now, people are going, where's the inflation? We have all this money in the economy, and the inflation is very, very confined. and very mo It's either almost non-existent, very, very moderate, or it's specific to certain areas, where there's significant inflation, it's specific to certain commodities. Where is it across the board? It's because the velocity's not there. That's what People that try to sell you gold with this kind of reasoning always leave out the second half of inflation. I can print the shit out of money, give it to the banks, and if they sit on it, there's almost no inflation. I can double the money supply. If they don't do nothing with it, it's like it's not there. The velocity of money is the speed at which dollars move through and multiply in the economy through fractional reserve lending. And the institutions have been 
playing this make a couple points on the free government money for many years now, and at this point, we're at a point where they got to start doing something with it. So I think all of that combines to a solid floor for you uh, in the next next few months, maybe to the next year. And I think that spells a real uh, – here's the, here's the thing about it. I think it's a pretty long floor. I think you're going to see metal come down, and I think you're going to see it sit there. I think you're going to see it bobble around a couple couple points up and down at that level for a very long time before the ne- and whenever that next crisis comes, that's when it's going to lift. Now, am I confident enough in that prediction that I'm out getting ready to short metals and then pick it up at the bottom? Or no, I, I'm not a trader. I don't work that way. Uh, again, I, I look at metal as a long time. Uh, dollar cost average, small buy, purchased over time, accumulated over time, wealth store that's there as an additional component to the other things that are your primary investments. See, that's why maybe I maybe I don't put it, maybe I don't think I need to put it that way, but maybe I do. When I say put five percent of your net wealth into silver and gold and other precious metals and similar commodities, what I'm saying is make it a very minor portion of your investing and savings. It's a little piece. It's 5%. I mean, 95% ain't it, if, if that makes sense. So be very careful with your motivations behind the purchasing of metal. And I'm not saying that that could never happen, but you could also win the lottery tomorrow. And please think about it that way. Like, well, that, if that happens, fine. I mean, don't get me wrong. If, if the... <laughs> If the economy went such that I could take a couple hundred ounce silver, cash it in, pay off my property, I'd probably do it. But I'm not betting any piece of my planning on that ever happening, and I don't think you should either. Hey, Jack. Charlie from North Carolina. Uh, took a little break there and uh, did some fiction audio books for my driving and went through Game of Thrones. It's a pretty awesome uh, story there. and I was catching up. Awesome job on 1416. Really inspiring. But the reason for my call is uh, something I found kind of disturbing, which was in this HBO series, the the HBO version of Game of Thrones, uh, there's an episode, man, called The Red Wedding. And during The Red Wedding, uh, they basically take this guy, Rob Stark's wife, the queen, and uh, they, they wind up doing something that's not even in the actual story. And what they wind up doing is killing the queen, but they stab her pregnant belly, and she bleeds all out. It's this horrible, horrible thing. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, is this is this something that, 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 I mean, does this say something about us as, as a people, that, that they would somehow feel that putting something so vile in a story is something that, that, that is good? You know, is this a reflection of us, or is this something... You know, maybe that should make us view HBO a little bit different. I mean, because that kind of, I don't know, it just disturbed me. And uh, I don't know, I just wondered if your thoughts on that, if it's even appropriate for the show. And anyway, thanks a lot, and uh, happy day. Um, I, I couldn't ever be happier right now than I am at the fact that I've been tried to by multiple people, talked into watching the miniseries Game of Thrones several times having watched the very first part of the first episode and going, I don't get it, and going off my life and not watching it. Because if that's the kind of crap that's in this show, I the book might be great, I don't know, but I didn't get it. 
And I don't ever like to watch things that are gratuitous in anything, whether it's violence or sex, which it seems like those two things are ever-present there, from what I've heard anyway, solely for the purpose of being gratuitous. I'm not a prude if there's a sex scene in something or if there's a, a very violent scene in something that serves a purpose, then I understand why it's there if it's the if it's a, a piece of the story that needs to be told. When it's there just for the purpose of doing it, this is what you get. So what the, it, I don't think that anybody's trying to make a case that this is a good thing. I, I don't think that anybody would do that, including people who produced it. But here's what happens. When you become gratuitous and foul and disgusting and violent solely for the purpose of doing such, for only the shock value of it, you get the audience numb and you have to keep raising the bar of disgusting, gratuitous violence to get the same impact and you get people that become numb to gratuitous violence and bloodshed. And I don't want to go here, but there is so much control of the media and there is so much like that is an extreme example but it's a direct result of the totality of this stuff going on uh, of blood and gore and guts and sex and everything else that's done to this extreme level and if you program a society with that long enough they get very very comfortable with you doing it to other countries because it's just the same thing you saw on TV um And I hope we're not there yet. You know, Insidious posted a link on the blog one day, and I don't remember exactly who it was, but it was this rap of uh, world news or something like that, taken down into snippets and tidbits and all. And uh, They were talking about the one of the pieces that it had to do, and I figured it would be like you know people you'd think of as looking like rap artists, but no, it was like white guys in ties and suits and stuff like that that you would see as general news anchormen and, and what have you. And it was poorly done but good done, like so it was high production value, uh, but not the kind of guy that you'd think it actually would make it as a rap artist, right? And it blended in reality with the shtick to the point that you were seeing things like hospital rooms that children were in with blood on the walls from bombing. And I commented and said, couldn't even watch it, it hurt my heart. He even sent me, instead he sent me a personal email, and he said, I'm sorry, It just it's a way that it's broken through. I didn't mean to disturb you today or whatever. And I'm like, it's not your fault. It was just the wrong day for me to see that. I'm hoping that most Americans... When they see something like that, not in some gratuitous Hollywood crap, but the real consequences of it, of our actions, will start to actually feel something and start to understand why we can't just continue to try to control the rest of the world. And I recently also posted something about, you know, the Obama latte salute, and it was a picture of George Bush with his Scotty dog and doing a similarly half-assed salute, and said, if you're worried about this, instead of the death that's going on in the name of our nation at the hands of these people across the world, you're not getting. And the one guy said, you know, can we lay off the whole killing people thing and death of children thing for a while because there's there are things that need to be done. Well, I'd just like to give you just a, 
Just how about just a body count of civilian casualties in the nation of Iraq and think about it for a second instead of tuning it out with what the news and the media tell you needs to be done. A conservative number from U.S. military documents released by WikiLeaks in October of 2010 um, document... Uh, 109,032 deaths between January 2004 and 2009. That's total. Of those, about 66,081 were civilian. So this is only the, the second Iraq war. This does not include the civilian casualties of the first Gulf War. This does not include everything that's continued to happen because of what we disrupted This is just Iraqi civilian casualties during the primary war years of 2004 to 2009 in your name. 66,000 Iraqi civilians were killed. If you don't like it, I don't care. Please, for just a moment, pull your head out of your fourth point of contact. Stop listening to the media. Stop thinking it's just, well, it's better them than us and other stupid shit. 66,000. Thousand Iraqi civilians were killed in the war in Iraq from 2004 to 2009. We have official enemy killed uh, combatants during that period of time of 23,000, meaning our precision war, our modern war, killed three times as many civilians as enemy by our own numbers. By our own numbers. I want to put this in perspective for you so you can start to understand why you hear me get on this let's stop killing people in other parts of the world thing once in a while and how the type of thing you heard from the caller lead to it. Still, many of you out there, well, it's, I mean, yeah, but it's terrible, but that's war. And Okay, listen. In Washington, D.C. is a place that would be hallowed ground for many people that would defend our actions in killing those 66,000 people, which include women and children who never did anything to any of us. And that place was a Vietnam War memorial. And it is a very somber thing. And to me, it is hallowed ground. And I've stood there multiple times and put my hand on the wall and run it across those engraved names and seen the names of the fallen American soldiers and never returned from the Vietnam conflict and thought about their sacrifices for me and have felt multiple different emotions, anything from, from gratitude to guilt to sorrow and joy and everything in between as I've looked at that wall. And the thing that struck me the most the first time I saw that wall, which was when I was in eighth grade, eighth grade, at 13 years of age, on a class trip to Washington, D.C., was the sheer size of that wall. On that wall are the names of all of the men that we know of anyway that went to Vietnam during those years of our conflict and never returned. In fact, when the wall was originally conceived of and constructed, there were 57,939 names on that wall, but as more names were found in 
figured out what happened because it was a chaotic time in history. The number today is 58,282 names are on that wall. And the number that routinely has always been thrown around because it rounds up real easy from 57.9 and rounds down real easy from 58.2 is 58,000 men listed on that wall. And when you hear 58,000 Americans died, I, get, I bet you you feel something. Okay? You feel something. And you don't feel it for real until you go to a place like the wall and see what 58,000 looks like. And when you stand there and you look at that wall and you, and you look at its expanse and you realize how little space one name picks up. In a day and age where we have a $17 trillion debt and the average person spends $200,000 to buy a house or more, the number 58,000, you just don't get it. But when you stand there, you get it. 58,000 men who served this nation went to that nation into a conflict we should have never got involved in and died. And millions died there. Well, in this, this war that so many want to hold up is a, is a good and just war that needed to be fought. Just in those primary war years of 2004 to 2009, 66,000 Iraqi civilians were killed. It's a significant number more than the names of our Americans on that wall. If you have never been to Washington, D.C., if you get the chance, please go there and stand in front of that wall and understand what the number 58,000 is. And the next time the TV tells you to chant USA, USA, number one, and hold up your phone finger in the name of killing people, think about what the number 66,000 would look like. And understand how horrible what happens in the world is. And there is a time when wars need to be fought, but they definitely need to be last resorts, not first responses. And fighting them there so we don't have to fight them here is a mantra that you've heard for years and you're fixing to hear they're here, we must fight them here in the names of taking your liberties while we continue to kill people overseas. And to the person that made that comment and anybody else that would about can we back off of it, I think we've backed off of it enough. And the type of thing that we see go on in violence in the media today is a direct reflection of our tolerance and willingness to accept such graphic, horrific bloodshed in the name of either entertainment or the name of some sort of nationalistic superiority. It is time. It absolutely is time for our country to fulfill the dream that it was based on rather than the nightmare that it is rapidly becoming. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, Chris from New Hampshire. I just finished listening to your recent show on assessing readiness for a real-world situation. And one thing hit me, uh, kind of hit home, and it was about getting lost in the woods. I've been lost in the woods. And uh, I've gone in the woods one too many times without a compass <clears throat> or knowing how to use um, direction finding. So here's what I did a couple years ago. I incorporated into my EDC a risk compass. Um, this one that I have is made by Sunto. It's the Sunto M9. It comes with a wristband. And I took the wristband off my watch but left the pins in and I used the wristband off the wrist compass so that basically when I have my watch on, I have the, rock, the my watch on the top of my wrist and the compass on the bottom. I don't put them next to one another because the watch will mess up the compass 
Now, I wear my watch everywhere except the shower, so it is always on me. So anytime I wander into the woods, I have my compass. Now, with that said, I do know how to use a shadow six and uh, north star navigation and using your wristwatch in the sun to find north and whatnot. I know how to use all those now, um, but prior to that, I didn't. Now I have a compass and those methods with me for every day carry. So just thought your audience uh, might find that useful. Thanks for all you do. Have a good day. I think adding in some way, shape, or form a compass to EDC is a really great idea, and it makes me wonder if I myself would become too trusting of technologies like GPSs and iPhones and things like that. I know that I never go into the wilderness without a compass, but I would like to add what I believe would prevent 90% or more of Lost in the Woods episodes from occurring. It makes me always think of what we used to call blowing and going uh, back when I was a young kid and we'd hunt a lot of the uh, the swamps and things like that in Pennsylvania that uh, you don't think of Pennsylvania as a swampy place, but there's one place called the Seventh Swamp, and it was swampy, and boy, you could get turned around and lost in that place easy. And uh, we knew the area well, and we had good points of orientation and, and, and reference, so we seldom had any problems with that, and we always hunted in groups and kind of stayed in contact with each other, and so that was useful. But I remember more than once being in places like that, and you'd see a guy blowing and going, and that's a guy you know is lost. And you're up in a tree stand, so you're motionless and just watching. You could see a lost person that's freaked out easily. Usually the hat's on backwards, and even if it's 20 degrees out, his face is glistening and sweat, and he's fighting through the tangles and, and what have you, going in what he thinks is a straight line and kind of curving as he does it, and the 100 yards to his left, if you go in a straight line, is a road, and you really don't want to make a lot of noise because you're out hunting, but you know this poor guy's lost, so you'd yell to him and say, dude, stop, stop, I see you. They stop, <sighs> right? And then they always try to cover their ass. They don't want to admit they're lost. But you'd say, dude, there's a road. If you turn that way and you're pointing, the guy to turn, you're like, no, no, turn a little more, turn a little more. All right, right there. If you go in a straight line right there about 100 yards, you're going to find the main road. And, you know, you might have to ask him where he's at. And I had one guy really admit how lost he was, and I talked to him, and I had blown everything. So I got down out of the tree stand, and my, my, my dad and I kind of hooked up and went somewhere else to hunt for the rest of the day. But we helped him get back to where he was going. And, and you see that kind of thing happen. And I'll tell you, the main reason it happens is not because of the way people think it happens. People think the main way people get lost in the woods is that they go way out in the wilderness and they can't find their way back. Most people that are lost fairly far out in the wilderness got there by blowing and going, but they didn't start out with any intention to go way back. These are people that think, I'll just go a little bit in and come right back out. I'll just go a little bit off the trail and I'll come right back out and what have you. And the trail turns and veers way to... So what happens is a guy thinks he goes straight off the trail, for instance. And to make this simple, let's imagine the trail is running north to south and the individual is traveling north on the trail. And hold your arm up so you got your elbow on a table and your hand up like you're going to arm wrestle with your left arm. Okay, And, and then... Right where your wrist is, bend your hand out to the to the outside of your arm, so it makes almost a right angle. All right, so now the trail's going straight north, and then the trail veers heavily and hard to the northwest. All right, and Duder is about a hundred yards south of that veer in the trail, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know that it veers to the left because he's not he's not researched that. 
So he's put your finger, you know, about two inches south of your your, your wrist, and pretend you're Deuter, and Deuter heads due east. So he goes out to the east. Now let's imagine that dude thinks he's going east, but he's going northeast. So he drifts north past that hook in the trail. Now he's only gone a few hundred thousand yards into the woods. So dude turns back, and now he's also screwed up a little bit, and he's not heading due west. He's heading slightly northwest, and every time he corrects himself a little bit more west, he goes a little bit more north, and that trail keeps veering further and for further away from him. At a certain point in time, he realizes, I must be going the wrong way, and he might actually only be 100 yards from the trail at this point, but... He's gone so much further out than he went in, he starts questioning it and starts changing directions and gets confused, and then he gets panicked and frightened and freaks out. Okay, So a compass would be great, because at least I know west is that way, I came from that way, I'm going to go back that way. It would also help me keep on course as I'm going in if I know how to use it. But even if I don't really know how to use it, knowing absolutely I came from the west, that is west, and continuously just checking, I'm probably going to run back into that main path, right? But that's not the way to, that's like how to get unlost. How do you not get lost in the first place? I think if most people would just get a good full understanding of the trail systems and the roads around them, they wouldn't get lost in the first place. And if they did, they would know, well, if I go south, I'm going to hit the main road. So they can at least at any time just bail out and say, this sucks, it's going to be a long-ass walk back to the car, but I know if I go south, I'm going to hit the main road. I have to. And because people don't get a good mental map in their head, and it'd be great, it's better if you have a map of the location with you, but because they don't get a good map of the location in their head, they're susceptible to getting lost. If Duder, that headed east off of that trail, had known that that trail starts to buckle out northwest, just north of the position he bailed on it, well, then when he was coming back, he might have went on a southeastern course a little bit. Because that would help compensate whether he got back of the big kink or not. It would be a quicker rock back. So he would just know that. And if there was a, a main road that was due south of him, that he came in on a different road, but he knew that main road. When he got really panicked and knew he was really lost, he might just calm down and at least he can get out to that road and get some help. And I think that that is the number one way that you can prevent yourself from being lost and have the best chance of self-extraction is just to have a good mental picture of where you're going and have a definite way to determine north, south, east, and west. And yeah, I can make like a sun compass and I can determine uh, a line and I can get that to orient with, but it's a lot more practical to have, like, like the caller saying, an actual compass on me. And the other thing is, well, I can make that little sun compass and I can get that, that, that line Except the problem is when I leave it, it's left behind. And how do I keep reorienting? Because what happens is people tend, because you have a strong leg and a weak leg, and usually one's actually, believe it or not, a little shorter than the other, step off to one side. And long, you get a person long enough, they'll end up a lot of times almost back where they started and make a giant circle. So orienteering is not only about knowing, okay, that's north, but picking a location and going to it to go due north. And then when you get there, again, reshooting another azimuth and back azimuth and continuing on the right direction. So taking an orienteering course or even just a class is a great way uh, to, to learn how to do that better. But 
again, just a compass and knowing, hey, there's a road to the east, and continuously adjusting to head east, you're going to hit the road. And I think with the right mental picture and the capability to at least know your directions, you will be able to self-extract from most instances and never get lost in the first place, or never really get lost. Once you start to get a little bit lost, you can always find your way back and reorient yourself. Anyway, let's take another call. Yes, hi, Jack. This is Dave. I'm a new listener, and I have a question about balancing the use of wood mulch. Um, we uh, live north of you in the 7A zone. Uh, we've got about half acre, and we've set aside a 50 by 150 spot for a garden, a new garden area. Now, the city here has a green waste program where it's free for residents to drop off your material, and you can pick up all of the moldy, shredded wood mulch you could ever possibly want. It's, it's a veritable endless supply. My question is, how much is too much to use on a garden, and what materials would I need to offset that uh, and, and bring it back in balance with other nutrient materials? Thank you very much. Well, that's not fair. I want an endless supply of mulch. I'm just kidding. I'm messing around a little bit. Um, here's the thing. Some people will tell you you can't use too much mulch, and those people are wrong. And if you do use enough wood mulch, you can end up with some levels of nitrogen deficiency. I hesitate to say that because so many people are afraid to use it in the first place when they shouldn't be. And it can be one of the most wonderful additions to a garden or a property that you can get your hands on. I don't want to scare anybody off of it. But if you put six inches of mulch down... Uh, into property that's already nitrogen deficient. It's going to be a long time before it starts giving back, and it can uh, take up a bit. So using some supplemental nitrogen when you put it down will help with that. But there's also a matter of what's practical. Consider a plant, consider it growing, consider how much mulch you have around it, and what's your slope. Some slopes it's going to wash away a little bit quicker, and therefore you need to use a little bit more to compensate for what you're going to lose. In some places, nice and flat, like a nice pre-dug garden bed, it ain't going to go nowhere. Um Here's how I like to use mulch in a garden situation. I like to use about an inch to two inches of it on, on the growing surface. And I like the areas surrounding my beds or my growing areas, and whether they're actually beds or just areas where you're doing most of your growing, on my pathways and the circumference, I like that to be four, six, eight, ten, I don't care, ten inches. I'm walking on like a carpet then. They can almost be the edges of the bed. And what, the reason I like to do that is that's going to sit there. It's going to start to break down. It's going to bind with nitrogen. It's going to become more and more decomposed and rotted. And that means that as I lose my mulch, as it's incorporated, as it breaks down in that thinner mulched area where my plants are, when I want to add mulch, I can take it right out of my path or right out of the circumference and put it onto the growing area. And when I bring new mulch in from this, this, this endless source, I'm not going to put it directly on the beds. I'm going to put it, I'm going to replace what I've taken out of the paths. So now I'm putting mulch on that's like halfway to compost. And it's already bound with plenty of nitrogen. And there's, there, you know, I mean, we could get real creative with this. Every time we cut the grass, we could turn a little bit of grass into the mulch that's around the growing bed. And that'll generate some heat and extend our growing season, but it won't really harm the roots of the plants with any kind of a burn as if we were to incorporate it straight into the beds. We don't have to do that, but we could. And that's also going to just really, really attract a ton of earthworms and other critters underneath that deep mulch that'll come out and do work for us under the thinner mulch uh, at the times of day and not when it's cooler. 
So that's the approach that I would take. And I, I really try to refrain from going too heavy where you're actually growing. And all I would say is this, is if you ever have plants that seem to be not doing as good as they should under wood mulch, pull a little bit back and see what happens. And you'll find what works because, and this is what I don't like about what the, the whole uh, Eden Gardens thing, with all because there's so many people running around if they're watching that documentary saying, well, all you have to do is, and whenever anybody says that, I know they don't have practical experience or their practical experience is limited to one or two places. Because everything changes. What kind of soil? Is it acid or alkaline? Is it shallow or deep? Is it clay or loam? Um, what, what is your climate? What is your precipitation? What are you growing? All of this stuff changes. So you play with it a little bit to find it out. But usually an inch or two in the growing area is about where you want to be. And you can pile the shit up out of it around those areas, break it down, and add it as you need it. And that way you don't ever run out. You don't always have to go back to get more, and you can slowly keep your resupply coming as you need it. Anyway, that's a great asset you have there. Make sure that you use it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Jim here from Rhode Island. Used to be from Connecticut. Long-time listener. My question is about the military and the police following the Constitution instead of orders. As a former Navy person myself, I would say that I would definitely stand up and defend the Constitution. My question is, what about the interpretation of the Constitution? If our military people and our peace officers can be convinced that the current interpretation is actually the Constitution, would they not then follow the interpretation and not the actual um, framework of the Constitution? I hope I'm making my question clear. Um, look forward to hearing from you and keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Bye. Um, this is nowhere near as simple as I think some people would think that it is, and it requires a lot of thought. And I like to send you away to your weekends with thoughts, so that's why I chose this as a wrap-up call for today. And this will be our final call of today. So the problem with the assertion of the interpretation of the Constitution is it's, it's, it's neither that simple nor would it be practical if it were. And here's what I mean by that. So let's say that we say that soldiers are to disobey orders that are unconstitutional based on their own interpretation of the Constitution. A thousand people might interpret the same line of the Constitution a thousand different ways with a thousand different opinions about what is or is not constitutional. Now, there are certain things that are kind of self-evident as they were intended to be, like shall not might be pretty self-frickin'-evident. But what does the right to possess keep and possess arms actually mean? Does it mean all arms at all times and always, uh, with no interference by government at all, ever, the end? And the current interpretation of society as a whole and the government as a whole, with its many checks and balances, no, it does not mean such. And if we were to get literal of our interpretations of the Constitution, we would understand that the restrictions in the Bill of Rights apply to the federal government, not to the states, or the states would not have signed on to them. So how do we get to the point where the federal government says that the Bill of Rights applies to the state of Florida or Texas or Georgia or California? This was changed over time through multiple decisions of the Supreme Court. 
And as the federal government wishes to enforce its will of restriction upon a state, for one law, it ends up having to do it on other laws, even if it didn't want to, like the Second Amendment. So the federal government was more than happy, let's say, to start applying the concepts of freedom of speech to the states and say you can't prevent your citizens from speaking their mind uh, just because you haven't officially gone as tight as the, the Constitution has. Federal courses cases come up. Supreme Court is more than willing to say, yeah, 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 we can't be having that and enforce that. And then when you get later on down the line where uh, it comes to the effect of the Second Amendment of the Constitution – There's precedent now, and the court against its, you know, being drug across the finish line, so to speak, eventually ends up saying, yeah, yeah, we got to do that too, right? But all of these things take away some level of the individual's ability to interpret the Constitution for themselves in the performance of their duty in either law enforcement or military service. When I say I do solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic, it is only part of the, the equation. I also uh, swear to obey the orders of the President of the United States, for instance, so long as they are constitutional. And it's not up to me to determine whether or not those are constitutional orders. It's up to the system as a whole as defined and written because the Constitution does not just say what the government cannot do. It is not, in the words of Barack Obama, just a document of negative liberties in that it says what government may not do to you but does not say what government needs to do for you, which is true in the way he was defining that when he said it, and he thinks it's a problem and I don't. I actually agree with that. But the Constitution also sets the framework for the government and does state what the government may do, how it is to do it, and how it is to be checked and balanced by the people and by its other departments of government. So when something has gone, if I'm a soldier again, if I'm back to being a soldier, and I actually consider many of the laws of my nation to be technically unconstitutional, but when those things have gone through the system and come out the other end and sanctified by society and the court system as being legal and legitimate under our current government, it is not for me as the individual to stand up and say, I will not do that. Especially as a soldier, as a police officer, at least I can quit. As a potential soldier, I can say, because I will be asked to do these things, I will not become a soldier. And unless the, the draft comes back, there is at least that option. But once, for whatever reason, and most people join the military out of a sense of duty and honor, and they do so to be a part of something larger than themselves, and it's not all bad, And but they usually join at 17, 18 years old. If they come in as an officer, they come right out of college. They're usually somewhere between 22 and 25. You're not exactly educated to all the ways of the world at that point. You believe the TV set, and all of a sudden now I've taken that oath, and I've sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution, and now you're asking me to do something that I think is unconstitutional, if I even know the Constitution at that point in my life, but yet it has been accepted by society, by government as a whole, and it has maybe possibly even been challenged in court and, 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 and legislated therefore. And once that's happened, I have no right as a soldier to disobey that order. I might have a moral obligation, but I don't have a right. 
not as seen by the uniform code of military justice, and they can and will prosecute me for it and possibly send me to a prison cell, a military prison. At least a police officer can say, I screw it, I quit, right? Technically, an officer in the military can resign their commission, but that doesn't mean that the military has to release them from their obligation of service. They may assign them a non-commissioned rank, private, sergeant, corporal, specialist, airman, whatever, right? They can do that. You can't just always just quit and walk away. Military comes with a level of obligation for contract to the government, which I don't think people a lot of times realize that when you join the military, you're forming a contract with the government that is enforceable under military justice for you to complete it. So it's it's very, very complicated. And people want to point to things like the Nuremberg trials and stuff like that and say, you know, I'm only following orders doesn't work. But you can bet that a camp where the, the guy that was the commandant of the camp that murdered thousands of people, he and several of his lieutenants, etc., may have, and I mean figuratively lieutenants, they may not have been of that rank, may have all been put to death or in prison long term or whatever, but there were thousands of other soldiers that served at those camps and guards that served at those camps, and many of of those were just, hey, they were following orders. That's how it was looked at. It is not that simple. Because you can't just not obey. When, when, when I say that military members are trained to disobey illegal and immoral orders, that is the truth. But the order must be clearly immoral or illegal under the current doctrine that you're serving. So if I am a military person and I am given an order to fire on civilians that are not harming things, that are not a threat to life and liberty and property. That is an immoral order. It is also an illegal order under current U.S. military law, and I am obligated to disobey that. And if I follow it, I am liable for the offense of the commander as well as myself. Right. So I, I now am prosecutable for following that order. I was to disobey that order. I might have a pretty good case and ignorance and I didn't know and I was, you know, but it's possible. So that's what I'm obligated to not follow. Where can this make a difference? It has to be at top levels of government and command. And it's actually much more possible in the law enforcement world than it is in the military circles. Again, You can go to jail for not doing what you're told in the military, and you can certainly suffer other consequences, and it's not easy to just walk away. There's things like desertion and AWOL, etc., that are prosecutable offenses under an entire... This is, I don't think a lot of people really get this, an entirely different justice system. The day, and I think more people that join the military need to understand that that's what you're getting yourself into. You've now put yourself into a, an entire court system with an entire different structure of systems and laws and enforceability and punishments and consequences than exists before you do so. And in some ways, it's actually advantageous if you've made a mistake, to be inside the U.S. military court system, and in some ways it's highly disadvantageous. Okay? Um, there are things that can happen in the military that will result in punishment at, let's say, a 
company or brigade or battalion level that might even result in the person losing their job and being expunged for, and put out of the military under a, a, a myriad of different discharges. People always think, well, that means dishonorable. Often it might be more things like a general discharge or a general under honorable. And what the person did, had they done it as a civilian, might actually have resulted in criminal charges and created a criminal record. But yet when that person comes out, they're not carrying a criminal record. They just were thrown out of the Army or the Navy or the Air Force. right? So there's this whole other world inside of there. Law enforcement, if you are a police officer or sheriff deputy or something like that, and you're asked to do something like that, you do have the option of saying, you know what, here's my gun, here's my badge, I'm out, I quit, I'm not doing it. And there's not a lot that can be done to you at that point. It might be hard to find a job as a cop somewhere else, but you can do that. So you get those two different worlds. Now, where I see this constitutionality actually starting to make headway is when you have sheriffs, especially elected sheriffs, who have the power of the people through the ballot box, which is probably the most powerful thing you can vote for at all anymore. And the sheriff says, not going to pursue charges against people for this. Well, see, now the deputy sheriff, the officer on the street, can do can follow the example of those in command. And there's not a hell of a lot that can be done to that sheriff. But he can't really prevent local PD in their jurisdiction from prosecuting the person for the same crime. And he can end up in conflict with a district of attorney that demands evidence that he says, and this has happened too, it's not that simple. It helps. It's one piece of the puzzle. If you had military command stating constitutionality as an objection to, being, to, to doing what they were told, you might get somewhere. But the problem is the military, I talked about this with Gary, uh, Gary Collins the other day, the military is very much what you would call, like many government institutions, a shark tooth system. So the major that stands up and says, this is unconstitutional, I will not take my battalion, and do this with them. We're not going to participate in this. Or the lieutenant colonel often would be your battalion commander, right? And they say, sir, you are relieved of your command. And they pop the XO and they jack him up and say, now you go do it. If he says he won't do it, there's a shit ton of people that'll do it. And most of those following that command will, will follow that commander, the new commander. You're trained to. There's your commander, Captain Smith. Do what he says. Okay, hey, today Captain Smith's gone. We put Captain Thompson in charge. Yes, sir. That's. I mean, it's not simple. It's not easy. In the end, it works this way. I did take an oath to the Constitution of this nation, and it's an oath that I personally take seriously, and it does require that I defend the Constitution itself and the nation and the people of this nation in any way that I can for eternity. 
It's an eternal oath is the way I see it. And I think most people that have taken that oath feel that way. There are pieces of that oath that I'm no longer obligated by. I am no longer a member of the United States military, even in reservist capacity, even in what's called individual ready reservist capacity. My entire obligation to the United States Army has been fulfilled, and they sent me a lovely piece of paper, not a DD-214, but the actual discharge that you actually get when you're full and total commitment has been, I have that, and I'm done. And that means I no longer have to obey the orders of the officers appointed over me because I don't have any. And I don't have any non-commissioned officers appointed over me. But the obligation to defend the nation now is subject to my interpretation to how I defend this nation. And one of the ways I've decided to defend this nation is through educating as many of the people of this nation to the truth who want to be educated to it. But would there be a time ever if it's before I'm too old of a man, that there might be enough totalitarianism in this nation where I would stand up and physically defend the people of this nation against the totalitarians that would stand in direct conflict to the Constitution. And the answer is that is not likely to happen, but it could and I would stand. Okay? But here's another harsh reality for the people of this country that say that the military won't shoot at civilians and the military's on our side and the military this and the military that and the military this. As a person that's part of the military this, prior service, I am not here to defend you from yourself. I am not here to defend you from your, for yourself. And that means if the government's march toward tyranny continues unabated, but yet the processes which by it could be changed are left in place, the Constitution is honored in open and free elections, etc. And the people of this country continue to choose a path toward totalitarianism, my same oath that obligates me to stand up for you in the face of tyranny obligates me to allow you to subject yourself to tyranny if that is what you choose under the way that the government is set up under the framework of the Constitution, including if amendments were passed that made previous amendments null and void. If the actual amendment process was followed, and the Second Amendment was effectively repealed, my oath actually obligates me to defend that new amendment even though I disagree with it. So there has to be a point at which we decide as human beings and individuals is our allegiance to the human race or to a piece of paper or to a nation or to an ideal. And where does that line cross? And where does it cross for us individually? That's what's subject to interpretation. Service in the military and the oath that goes along with that service requires one to follow the Constitution, not just where it makes sense, but even where they disagree with it, as long as it's within the confines and the framework thereof. I wish I could tell you that when I was a 17-year-old kid and took that oath for the first time, I had any idea of any of the things that I've just told you. And the reality is, I had no idea about any of the things that I just told you. I really thought I was doing the right thing. I really thought it was something special. And I really thought I was part of something special. And I was. But I damn sure didn't understand it. 
And there's a reason we recruit young kids that are just smart enough to pass the ASVAB test. Because the words that I just spoke would sound like a foreign language to most of them. That's what you have to think about in regard to this caller's question. That's some, some somber stuff to think about. But the fact that an old red lake like me can figure all this out means that other people can too. And the caller is right about this. It is not that we need to convince or explain to the military and law enforcement of our citizenry what the Constitution is, what it says, and what it really means, and how many things that are going on that are unconstitutional. Law enforcement and military in our society are first and foremost and always are civilians, citizens. We are citizens even when we are soldiers. We are even called that the citizen soldier. And certainly military are required by the Constitution to be civilian. The, the law enforcement community is a civilian organization. If they f are federalized, they become military, and they are no longer considered law enforcement, and they have different purposes and different applications that are constitutional. But in the end, they're all citizens and civilians first. The challenge is not to educate law enforcement and military to the Constitution. It is to educate the whole of the people to the Constitution. But so long as our people are willfully ignorant... We must educate ourselves to individual rights, individual liberty, and individual pathways toward freedom, liberty, and self-sufficiency. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.